So I'm a firstborn. If you have any firstborns out there, I don't know a lot about birth order stuff. But what I've heard is that with firstborns, we're oftentimes rule followers, which doesn't mean we always follow the rules. It simply means we get really uncomfortable when we see others not following the rules. The rules matter to us. And so when we're breaking the rules, or especially when we see someone else breaking the rules, it creates this tension in us. I have for years been that guy who, as I'm driving down the road, if, I, if I'm coming up to road construction and I see that sign that says left lane ends, merge right, I do it immediately, no matter how long that line is. I'm going to be the guy who gets there and I stay there. And I'm the guy who just sits there and stews at all these people who are just flying by, these jerks that are just flying by in that open left lane and they're trying to merge right at the, the end. I mean, the, the nerve of those people. In fact, I, I'm actually the guy who will sometimes pull halfway out into that left lane to ensure that not only am I following the rules, but I'm going to do my darndest to make sure everybody else follows the rules too, unless they want to drive through me. But then a couple years ago, I saw these new signs that began to emerge that said, use zipper merge. And it sort of changed everything. I mean, it's basically, they were asking everyone to go all the way to the front and then, and then zipper merge one car at a time and everything changed. I mean, now I was the guy in the left lane so angry at all those idiots who were sitting in the right lane. I mean, don't they get this? They're supposed to use the zipper merge. This is actually making it slower for everybody, people. Use the zipper merge. The sign says that. What had been forbidden was now actually the rule. And when the rules changed, my perspective changed. Because as a rule follower, whatever the rule is, whether it's actually right or wrong, I want to follow it and I expect others to follow it as well. You know another area in my life where I tend to do this? The Bible, right? I think as a rule follower, as a firstborn rule following freak, I tend to want to turn the Bible into this sort of list of rules. And if we can just get it right, then we're doing it right and we're all good and we get the gold star. And if we don't, then we're that deplorable jerk idiot who drives badly and all those other things. But I know that I'm not alone in that. And I don't think that's exclusively a first born thing. I think one of the very common misconceptions about the Bible is that it is this list of rules, this book of rules that need to be followed. Or if you're not a firstborn, or if you don't believe any of this stuff, that it's a book of rules that don't need to be followed. But either way, it's a book of rules, rules that are designed to control us and to keep us down. And, and depending on your perspective, either rules that will, if you follow them, make you happy, or rules that if you follow them will keep you from happiness forever. But either way, it's a book of rules. And frankly, the people of God have been doing this since the very beginning. Early on in the story of the people of God, God had given them 10 commandments. And by the time of Jesus, they had taken those and turned them into hundreds and hundreds of rules so they could ensure that everyone was following the rules. There's a place to write this down. We tend to make the word of God a book of rules. But there's a problem there too. There's a tension there too. We call the Bible the gospel. And the English word gospel actually comes from this, this Greek word uh, that's called euangelion, which roughly translated means something like you is good or pleasant. And, and gelion means message or news. So gospel literally means good news. But that doesn't make sense. I mean, if the Bible is just a book of rules, then how is that good news? How is that the gospel? So what is the gospel if it isn't just a, a list of rules? What is the good news? What is the gospel? 
for me growing up, the gospel message was really, really clear. It was Jesus died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life in heaven with God when we die. And all we have to do is pray this simple prayer. That was the essence of the gospel message. And certainly all of that, or you know, most of that, if somewhat simplistic, most of that is true and it's good news and it's wonderful. That is good news. But is that the gospel that Jesus talked about? I mean, throughout all of his teaching, the Bible says that Jesus preached the gospel. Mark 1, for instance, right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, it says these words. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. But, but what would that have been? I mean, how could Jesus preach the gospel of his death and resurrection? It hadn't happened yet. It wouldn't have made sense to his original audience. In fact, Nowhere in Jesus' teaching, as recorded in the Gospels, do we see Jesus defining or outlining the Gospel in the same way that I've always heard it outlined. You know, sort of this, in, in death, sin was defeated, and in resurrection, death was defeated. I'm not saying those things aren't true and that, and that they aren't good news. They are. I'm just saying that's not how Jesus preached the Gospel. That's not how Jesus talked about the good news. How did he? Well, let's keep reading. Next verse. It says, he, he went proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The good news for Jesus is about the kingdom of God being at hand. In fact, if you read through the gospels, particularly the book of Matthew, Jesus almost always pairs the gospel or the good news with the kingdom of God or the kingdom of God. Of heaven. For instance, in Matthew 9, he says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The good news, according to Jesus, is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven more than he talked about any other subject in his preaching in the gospels. So if the gospel, if the good news is about the kingdom of God, then we have to ask the question, what is this kingdom of God that Jesus talked about so much. Well, well, simply put, the kingdom of God is a kingdom where God's rule and God's reign are being made complete. It's, it's what Jesus preached about. It's what Jesus said was at hand. But then Jesus also prayed and taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's this idea that it's at hand and it's not yet. Pray that his kingdom would come. This kingdom where what God wants to happen is what does happen. Where everything is God intended it to be. And I think deep down inside of each of us, all of us want this. I mean, we look around and we see a world that is so broken by war and hate and disease and fear and we want someone to make it right. Whether we know it or not, what, what we're longing for, that deepest longing, is that God would rule. That God's rule would actually be in effect in this world. Because God is a good God who created a good world and has good intentions for that world. The good news, the gospel, is that God is bringing everything back to the way it was meant to be from the beginning. Because God is ruler. God rules. And that starts with us. You see, there's a place to write this in your notes as well. It's not about the rules. It's about the rule. 
It's not about what rules we follow. It's about whose rules we follow, whose rule we follow. It's about the rule of God in our lives and through our lives into this world. It's about submitting to God and allowing him to be king of our lives. And when we do, then we experience God's rule, God's kingdom, the kingdom of God in our lives. And others experience that through us. And in that kingdom then, there is no more murder. There is no more adultery, no more envy of others. There is no more war. There are no more lies when God rules God has given us ways in which we should live, but it's, it's not about the rules. It's about living lives that reflect God's good plans for us so that we, and in turn, so that the world around us can experience what God always intended for us. Yes, God's rules should shape the way that we live and interact with God and with each other, but the rules aren't the point. There's simply the structure through which we can experience God. And even there's grace even in that structure, even in the rules that exist. I mean, if you look at the whole story, the whole book, the whole Bible, the word of God, you see that grace runs through all of it. The good news didn't start with Jesus. It's being made complete in Jesus the good news, the gospel runs through all of the story from the very beginning. The Bible is chock full of these stories of grace, that good news that from the beginning, God's people failed to live up to their calling and time and time again, God extended grace. The good news didn't start with the New Testament. It runs through the whole story, the whole Bible. I think perhaps one of the clearest illustrations of that truth, that the grace, that the gospel runs all the way back can be found in the story of King David. Here was this boy that in no way looked like the material for a king. Uh, he was a nobody, a shepherd. He was the youngest and smallest child of a nobody named Jesse. He was the runt of the litter. No one would have chosen him to be king. And yet God chooses David and he blesses David. David, or God even promised this young king that it would be through one of his descendants, one of David's descendants, that God would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, that he would bless all the nations through one of David's descendants. God's, or one of David's descendants would save the people and it would establish a kingdom that would never end. And David was a great king, perhaps the greatest king ever, until he wasn't. I think probably most of us are familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. I mean, King David's men were out at the battle and David should have been with them, but instead he's lounging on the roof at night and he's walking around and he looks and he sees this woman Bathsheba who's bathing. And long story cut short, Bathsheba ends up pregnant and David has her husband, whose name was Uriah. David has her husband Uriah killed in order to cover up the pregnancy and make Bathsheba his wife. This is easily the lowest point in David's life, easily his biggest failure. I mean, think about how many of the Ten Commandments he broke in this one act. He, I mean, he stole a man's wife by murdering him. That's at least three right there, right? The prophet Nathan then comes to David and basically calls him out on this behavior. It says, God, God sees what you've done. God knows the truth behind this. You can't hide that. From God. And, and in that moment, David submits. David allows God's rule to reign. And he submits to that. And he, and he, and he faces what he's done. 
And it's not that there aren't consequences for his actions. I mean, they were devastating consequences. But David did the right thing. And he chose to submit to the rule of God. And as a result, got to experience the grace and the blessing and the restoration of God. Often we hear that story told as sort of this cautionary tale about being careful to not let our eyes wander or, or look at pornography. And certainly that's true. But if we just, if we stop there, we miss out on so much more of the story, the way that grace unfolds throughout the rest of the story. And the more you look, the longer you see, the greater the story of grace and the gospel comes to the forefront. I mean, David had disqualified himself. He'd broken the rules in the worst possible ways. There was redemption and restoration. Who is the son of David and Bathsheba? Do you remember? Solomon, who would become king, who would build the temple, who would become the wisest man ever to live, a man who God would bless tremendously. That's redemption, that's restoration. But it doesn't stop with the story of Solomon. In fact, it goes all the way to the New Testament. In the first chapter of Matthew, the story of Jesus, we're introduced to the genealogy of Jesus, who according to the scripture can be traced back to David. Now, if I'm God, and I'm going to fulfill this promise that I made to David, that I would use one of his descendants to bless the nations and fulfill the Abrahamic promise, certainly I would have chosen to do that through one of the ways in which David stayed in bounds, where, where David chose to live the right way. I mean, certainly we can forgive David his indiscretion, but why spotlight? Why reward bad behavior, right? I mean, it's okay to forgive him, but let's not highlight it. But if you read that first chapter of Matthew, you see a very different story. How is it that Jesus is traced back to David? The genealogy actually starts all the way back at Abraham, and it walks painstakingly through all the ancestors of Jesus. It's, you know, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, and on and on and on. until so we get to verse 6, and we get to David. It says this in Matthew 1, And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Jesus' line to David, all the way back to Abraham, to the promise, was traced through David and the wife of Uriah. Matthew's highlighting not only that the lineage went through Bathsheba, but that Bathsheba was actually the wife of another man. He's, he's forcing his readers to remember the tragedy and the brokenness of that situation. David and Bathsheba, I mean, there's almost no women mentioned in this lineage, but the writer is clear here that it was through Bathsheba that the Savior of the world was born. Matthew shines a spotlight on it, and that's not a coincidence. God chose to accomplish his rule and reign, accomplish his gospel in bringing Jesus Christ into this world. And he chose to do it through the product of, through the descendant of David's very lowest moment, David's very worst choice, David's greatest failure to follow the rules. And I think that speaks tremendously to the heart of God. It points to the heart of the gospel. What is the gospel? I, I think the gospel means that God's kingdom, God's rule and reign, which we so desperately want, has come. And that God has given us rules to shape the way that we live. The creator of the universe 
The one who knows everything, who designed us, gave us rules by which we can, instructions on which we can live the life that God intends for us. And that is good, good news. And the gospel is that when we fail to live into that, even when we fail, there's still redemption and restoration. That we can experience God's good plan for us still, even when we mess up epically. The epic fail. The gospel, which courses through every story of the Bible, is that God can use and does use imperfect, broken people to accomplish his rule and his reign in this world. The gospel is that God's rule and reign is bigger than our failure or even our ability to live by the rules and be rule followers, even if we're firstborns. So maybe you're listening and you, you know, you've got this all figured out. You know, you're like, Jason, like, yep, I get it. That's great. You know, I've actually figured out how to live my life this way and we're all good. This is all kind of old hat. I'm sorry if I've wasted the last 20 minutes of your life. But I'll tell you what, I need to be reminded. I need to be reminded regularly that, that God uses imperfect people. I need a reminder that even when we're called of God, even when we're following God, even when we're the greatest king ever, and God has blessed us so richly and we're living life, even then it's possible that we mess up. Even then it's possible that we fail and we make bad choices. But if in those moments and in those failures, we're willing to come to God and face it, we're willing to come to God and be under his rule and reign. We're willing to confess our failures to God and to others. Then God can and will restore us and renew us and use us to play a crucial role in his bringing the kingdom of God into this world. In the same ways that he used David and Bathsheba and his brokenness and used so many of the characters of these Old Testament and New Testament stories. Think about some of your greatest failures. I know that for me, I can bring them to mind like instantly. They're, they are right there. My list is long and it's easy access. <laughs> Imagine what God can do if, he allow, if you allow him to take those greatest failure moments and turn them into something beautiful. What is the gospel? I think at its core, the gospel is an invitation. An invitation to you and to me. An invitation to enter into this life where God gets to be king. God gets to be the ruler of our lives. To submit, yes, but, but also to experience the life that God has for you, that has he has for me. It's an invitation to see God take our biggest failures our biggest mess-ups, our biggest disappointments, and to turn them into something beautiful for you, but even more importantly, for the world around you, and even for generations to come. It's an invitation into a new life, into a new kingdom, into a new hope. Will you accept that invitation? I think for many of us, this, this book, the Bible, that we often tend to reduce down to a list of rules is so much more than that. It's an invitation 
for us to experience restoration and redemption and renewal. God offers it to us free. He wants to do it in us and through us. And so I'm going to pray a prayer and I invite you to pray it with me. And maybe it's a prayer that you've prayed you know, many times before. This is the thousandth time you're praying it. Or maybe today is the very first time. But I invite you to pray along with me. Pray. Jesus Christ, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you in a world where the evidence of sin and brokenness and pain is all around us and is so loud that God, you in the person of Jesus Christ entered into that reality and brought a new reality, a new kingdom, good news. God, we repent of the ways in which we've turned that into a, a list of rules to follow and to hold others to. God, now in this moment, we ask that you would reorient our hearts and our minds and our priorities toward you. We admit that we are sinners and that we need you. God, forgive us for the ways in which we consistently fail you and others and even ourselves. Forgive us, cleanse us, and make us new. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.